Morning. Lovely to be here. Uh, I've never been here before, but I know a reasonable number of people. Some students, some friends, um, some very old friends. Friends who I've had for a long time, not a very old, you get what I mean. <coughs> some of you that uh, know me will know a little bit for what's in store. Um, I'm giving a topical sermon today. I'm not sure... I know you have a very high level of preaching in this church. It makes me a bit nervous because now I have to preach. And so this is something different. So that's leading me off the hook. Bit of a topical sermon on heaven. I was preaching in a church uh, a little while back and the, the guy, good friend of mine who's the pastor, he introduced me and said, Mike preaches, uh, Mike's preaching is like drinking out of a fire hose. And so it's a little bit like, here we go. And I think when we come to Scripture and we look at what's to come, things to come, particularly the afterlife, new heavens, new earth, I think Scripture's doing this. It's like we're, we're drinking out of a fire hose. There's just so much stuff there. There's image after image after image. It's rich and it's compelling. And so I want to convince by overwhelming you. That's, that's the goal. So uh, there's also a bit of dry humor in there. Some of you will get it. Some of you won't. That's okay. It's all right. I watched a movie on Netflix a little while ago, and it was, I don't know, Finnish, Swedish, I mean, what's the difference? And it was slow, and it was weird, and it was sort of avant-garde, and it was slow, and did I mention it was very slow? And so the first scene, nothing much happens, but you can't make a movie out of nothing, so the second scene, the third, the fourth, the fifth, we're sort of a half an hour invested into this movie, nothing's happened. It's not going anywhere, but half an hour, you can't make a movie that does nothing, and so we watch it to the end, an hour and a half of our lives, we can't get back. No, nothing happened. It, it, was, it was miserable. It was this story that went nowhere. It, the, there were characters, but they didn't seem to have any purpose, and there was a plot, but it didn't seem to make any sense. So by pure definition, it was senseless and purposeless. It was a waste of time. No wonder it went straight to Netflix, I guess. Because we don't want to pay money to see that stuff. We want to make sense of our world, don't we? we? We want to know there's a purpose and that we're part of it. We want to know that there's some great resolution to life. We want to know where we're going, what it's for, and why we're here to make sense of stuff. I don't think Netflix weird movies... I fell off the stage once preaching. I'm going to be careful here. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's just Netflix movies. I think philosophies are like that, actually. In fact, I'm convinced, but I'm biased, that, that any ideology, philosophy, or theology outside of Christianity is actually senseless and pointless, too. Now, I'm going to give you a philosophy lesson, but uh, let's talk about Marxism very, very briefly, very briefly. Uh, I was down in Otago University. I was filling in for a, for a lecturer there for a semester, so we were living there, and we just did the university stuff. There's, there's all these free lectures, public lectures, you name it. So it was a particular topic that I was keen to hear from those people that were, were representing this position. I went along just to be anonymous. I wanted to hear a good presentation by a position I don't agree with and then just slip out. I sort of get into this room and it's not the crowd I thought. There's about 20 people there. It's all these guys in sort of their hipster jeans and girls in crushed velvet. It's like, that's not quite the, the, the context I thought I was going to. The guy that was speaking wasn't really on the topic they advertised at all, which is a bit of a rip-off. And it was just radically anti-Christian. And, and I, I realized once the chairman stood up, he welcomed us to the Marxist group. Marxism! I mean, how many hundreds of millions of lives quite literally have to die in the name of Marxism for us to know it's a singularly bad idea? It's just, it's just plain stupid, actually. 
but this is university, this is 101 students, so everything's car pie. So this guy gives a talk, we're sitting in a circle, I'm about 18 out of 20 in this circle, the chairman stands up, he says, now we'll all give a response to the talk. And so around the circle they go, and it's the most vitriolic hate speech about Christians I've ever heard in my life. I mean, if we listen to them, you Christians are, and I can't even repeat in polite company what they said about us. For a group of tolerant people, they were pretty much the most intolerant people I'd ever met. And so like an executioner's axe the, the, is coming around and it gets to me, and I'm a theologian, I'm a Christian, I'm a passionate believer, I have faith, and I, you didn't ask me, but I feel I have to represent you somehow in the little time I've got. I can't say nothing. And so I was like, what do I say? I stood up and I said, I think from what you've said, I'm the person you hate most in all the world. I'm a white, middle-aged male, Christian, theologian. And they're like... <laughs> I was like, what do I say? I said, my problem with Marxism is it has no end game. It has no point. It's a senseless and pointless ideology. Because what you think is that there'll be a great revolution where we'll dethrone the man and then we'll come in with a new power and then that power becomes the establishment that needs to be dethroned. And so there's another revolution and they become the man and that power has to be destabilized. And on and on and on it goes in this miserable cycle until one day somehow, I was going to say God willing, but you can't, somehow we'll have this great utopia, this Marxist vision of the end of all things where there's this one world order and everyone will just get along. Where there'll be Christians and there'll be Buddhists and there'll be Hindus and there'll be Satanists and there'll be Druids and there'll even be tax reform specialists all getting on with each other and no one sharing their views because that would conflict. But I said, you don't understand. Just take us Christians. Wherever Christianity takes root, wherever you find Christians, we are activists. We cannot keep our mouths shut. We are involved in oppression because we want to relieve it. We're involved in poverty because we want to relieve it. We are on the side of the outcast to bring them in. Wherever there is social injustice, you will find Christians working to solve that because the gospel compels us because Christ is Lord of all the world. Amen? So if you think in some utopia, Christians are going to be some down in some dark corner, keeping in a holy huddle to ourselves and not saying anything, you've got another thing coming. Your philosophy is pointless and senseless. Now, that was 20-something years ago. I don't know if I was as articulate as that, but it's my story, and that's how I choose to remember it. So that's what happened. <laughs> the guy stands up, he's cheering it, and he wanted to have a bit of a debate until he realised I was quite serious and I could keep going. And so he... he adjourned the meeting. He said, well, look, we're very busy. We've got a protest tomorrow. We need to make our, our placards. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, this is not preacher's license. This, this actually happened. I said to him, what are you protesting? He said to me, oh, I don't know. We haven't decided yet. <laughs> Pointless and senseless. Now, compare that to Christianity. We, of all people, know that life is fragile. We know that. Life is temporary. It's fleeting. We get that. We've got friends, family who've passed away. We get sick. We suffer. We have relationship breakups. We get it. We get what life is. But what we also understand is that 
this life is not all there is to life. And that gives us this wild hope. Not pie in the sky till we die stuff, but this hope that what God has promised, which has already come to pass, we can, faith, we can trust and have faith in his future promises, that they too will come to pass. We know that this life is not all there is to life. One writer likened faith to this great rope. I love this image where he says that God strides into time in our distant past. He, he takes on flesh. The eternal son takes to himself a human nature and he walks into our history. And he becomes Jesus Christ of Nazareth and he puts on flesh and he lives this Christian life for us. He overcomes sin and temptation. He resists. He is obedient to the will of the Father. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He goes to the cross for us and our salvation. Paul says he becomes sin for us. He takes it on himself. Come down off the cross if you're the son of God. They tempted him. And it must have been a real temptation. He could have called legions of angels. And I bet you he wanted to. <laughs> Let's do a new Marvel movie and we'll call it Jesus Christ, right? But he stays on that cross because he understood what he had to do in obedience to the Father that our salvation comes through the cross and then his resurrection. And he rises on that third day. He ascends 40 days later. He sends us the Holy Spirit. And then in our history, in our timeline, we encounter that same risen Jesus Christ. Me when I was at Sunday school. Some of you as adults. Some of you as very old adults maybe. But in our various ways, our diverse ways through scripture or through a neighbor or through an outreach or through a vision or a dream or whatever it might be, that same Jesus encounters us. And that same Jesus is enthroned in the heavenly realm. He says, one day he will come back again. He will make all things new. He will judge the living and the dead. There will be no tears. There will be no death. He will come. He will separate the good from the bad. He will deal with it. We don't know exactly how, praise the Lord, but we know that he will. In the new Jerusalem, God's home, God's place, where Christ is right now preparing a place for those who love him, we have this vision and revelation that that, place, the new Jerusalem, will come down and make its home on earth. And there will be a new earth and a new heaven. The old is gone, the new has come. And this writer says that it's like when Christ comes in his incarnation, he wraps a rope around his waist, and when he encounters us in our life, we grab hold of that rope, and it's now anchored into the future. And it pulls us forward by faith. As we hang on to Christ, as we believe in his promises, we're dragged, we're drawn, we're compelled closer and closer to that reality which is to come. I love that image. It's really biblical image as well. Because we're told in, in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at God's right hand in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about things down here, for you died when Christ died and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed to the whole world, we will share in his glory. God wants us to be heaven-focused so that we will be of use now. That's the theme of this message. How do I convey that to someone, to a group of Christians in one small talk, well, I can't. And so I've written a book, $25, available there. <laughs> I have 
So what I want to do in the brief time we've got is just give you a few big images of what we'll do in this new heaven and new earth. Just some, a sample. What I hope it'll do is encourage you, remind you. For some of you, some of it might be new. And I hope it'll give you lots and lots and lots of questions because what we need is a theological imagination. God doesn't tell us everything about what's to come, but neither does he tell us nothing. Why? I think he gives us enough information to give us hope, to give us confidence, to give us assurance. He gives enough information for our minds, our imaginations to start to race. And over dinner and over lunch and over our Christian lives, these are the things we talk about. What do you think we'll see there? What do you think we'll taste there? What do you think we'll do there? Given what Revelation tells us, now, what do you think? So let me just give you a few images. The first, the first is rest. It's a great place to start. See, when we go to Paul's letters, he often characterizes the Christian life, and, and you can relate to this, it's a fight. It's a wrestling match. It's a running race. And he doesn't even want us to finish. He wants us to win. Talk about pressure. But there's this wrestling against evil, against sin. There's this wrestling against the flesh, against the devil. You know that, don't you? I think I became a Christian somewhere around seven or 48. So let's just say best part of 40 years. Some of you have been a Christian a lot longer than that. How do you do it? I, I, I want to hear your testimonies as much as I do those of new Christians. Because I think those of you who have been Christian for a long time, that's who I have to learn to. Day in, day out, you choose and re-choose to follow Christ, to sacrifice, to submit, to live in his presence. I've been doing it for about 40 years. I'm not perfect. I'm probably the least spiritual person I know, but I try. I read my scripture. I pray. I confess my sins. And every single day, I have to confess them. Every single blimmin' day. Except those days where I don't think I've done anything wrong which are my worst days, just means I'm the most ignorant, and so I might just ask my wife or someone else. I'm sick of it. I'm really tired of it. Why, why can't I do what God wants me to do? Why can't I do it without reserve? And why can't I do it in such a way that sin, my sin, your sin, doesn't get in the way? I'm sick of my sin, but I'm also sick of yours because we cause each other to stumble. I cause you to stumble, you cause me to stumble. We normally call that stuff evil. And it wears us down. It bears down on us. In our worst moments, it threatens to overcome us. Is it just me? Did... The first image we're given in the new, new earth, new heavens, in the resurrection, in a resurrected body like Christ Jesus, is that it is without sin. The sin nature is gone. And it's rest. I prepare a place for you, says the Lord Jesus Christ. We're promised throughout the book of Hebrews repeatedly that there's a promised rest for us. Now, rest is not the winding down to inactivity. I think that's what some of my early childhood images of heaven were teaching, that it's so restful in the sense that we're lying on a hammock, we're not doing anything. That sounds really good for a week or two at the moment. But I don't want to live my life on a hammock. The rest in Scripture is not inactivity. It's that we cease striving against all that resists God. Can you imagine waking up in the resurrection and wanting to do the will of God because the sin nature's gone? 
right? There's no decision, will I serve God? Will I serve the devil? Will I follow Jesus? Will I follow my own will? That's gone. Because currently we're slaves. We're enslaved because we can choose. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to do the will of the Father, right? I've come to speak the words the Father has given me. I've come to do the will of the Father, not my will but, your, but, not my will but yours be done, he says in Gethsemane. That's freedom, isn't it? The freedom to only do God's will and to do it well. Imagine waking up in eternity, having a desire to do God's will and actually doing it throughout the day. Soul enlarging, passion increasing work where we're worshipping and we're working and we're doing what the Lord wants us to do and then we come before Jesus in the cool of the day, if we do that, I don't know, and he says, Mike, this is what you've done today. And it was good. And I'm waiting for the dot, 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 but. No, no, no buts. It was good. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And then the next day, and the next day, and the next, and the next, and the next, whatever a day is in eternity, where I'm able to do that for which I was created. And I'm able to do it properly. I'm able to do it in a way that's acceptable. I'm able to do it in a way which is natural. I preached, it as church, preached this at a church a few weeks ago, no, a few months ago. After the service, this guy comes. I'm out the, out the front selling books. Did I mention them? Uh, <laughs> And this guy comes storming across and he goes, what was the point of that sermon? And I'm like, mm, disgruntled congregant, it's not the first time, won't be the last. Um, I'm a bit choleric, so, so what, do you, what, what do you mean? He goes, what was the point? I said, what, I don't, uh, heaven. He goes, when people leave that church, what did you want them to know? I said, I want them to leave the church having a vision for what's to come and being inspired to want to go there. I thought so, and I don't want to go after what you said. I said, specifically, you said in eternity, because it's rest, we will only be able to do what God wants us to do. I said, that's right. He goes, I, want to, I don't want to do what God wants us to do. That sounds like hell to me. Now, I'm no pastor, I'm a lecturer, so take that in mind. In a rare moment of being, I think, full of the Holy Spirit, I said to this guy, you're not a Christian then. Is that all right? <laughs> you're not a Christian. No Christian can think that way. He goes, I'm not. I'm an atheist. <laughs> so that explains it. And then we had half an hour, really good conversation. Uh, why are you at church if you're an atheist? My partner's a Christian. But I don't come because of her. Really? Uh, he was much closer to the kingdom than he could ever have imagined. Rest for Christians, that's enticing, isn't it? And what were we doing in this rest? Because we'll have all this activity. The next image we're given is worship. Now don't, this is a great church, wonderful, it was a really good service, but don't think this service for all eternity, or my church's service for all eternity, worship in this big sense, where we, where we pray and we praise, where we work, where we respond, where we're creative, worship, where every part of our being is turned towards the triune God and we give him glory. And again, lots of times when I preach this and I say worship is at the centre, Christ is at the centre, the, the angelic host is singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. People are throwing their crowns before him. It's symbolic that we give all of ourselves to God and we want to get near him. In, in Catholicism, the goal is called this beatific vision that we would just see God. 
Protestants are so disparate, we don't have one vision, but we do understand that it's getting close to God. It's being in his presence. It's being, being so close to him that his likeness wears off, rubs off on us, that we become like Christ. We don't replace him, but we become like him. And as I preach this in a lot of places, I see a lot of people start to, oh, really? Worship? Again, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you're not a very good one. <laughs> I get to spray and walk away. Uh, <laughs> because can you think when you became a Christian, why did you become a Christian? Lots of reasons, lots of ways, but common to all of them is that we fall in love with Christ that the Holy Spirit compels us and draws us. It doesn't just convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit convinces us that God is beautiful, that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are the best thing we could ever possibly conceive. He is the ultimate being which we just want to be like. And that's very biblical from Genesis through to Revelation. We'll be worshiping. One image that Paul gives us of worship in Scripture is work. And again, when I do this, I hear these inaudible grumbles sometimes. But, but images in Scripture continually tell us that we'll be working. In fact, if you look at Paul's letters, if we just take the 13 with his name on, the Pauline letters, every single instance when he tells us, you must work hard as a Christian, he gives a reason. And it's a surprising reason. It's not altruism, be good for goodness sake. It's because you will be rewarded Every single time. He talks about crowns. He talks about jewels in our crowns. He talks, as I say earlier, not just running a race, but finishing it to get the prize. He talks about building on this foundation, which is Jesus Christ, with, with gold and silver and costly stones. It's judged by the fire, and it's purified. It's made better. He's got parables in Scripture, Jesus does, right? About giving people different, different monetary lots. And says, go, make it work. Use your gifts. The miserable guy who's so petrified of the bank manager, he digs a hole, puts it in, buries it. When the guy comes back, picks it up, gives it to him. Here's your coin you gave me. And Jesus in the parable is like, you miserable short-sighted person. I didn't give it to you to bury. I gave it to you to reproduce. And the other guy, he has five and he has multiplied. He's given five cities. The other guy's given 10. He multiplies it and he's given 10 cities to reign over. Exactly what all that means Read the book. But, but what it has in common is this, that we will be rewarded for works we do here and we will continue to be rewarded for work we do there. But what is this reward? I like to use this example. C.S. Lewis sort of inspired it. Where, imagine there was the, the, the situation where the government said, if you have children, when they turn 21, you get a million dollars from the government. Imagine that. Um, Where's the Mountfords? <laughs> You're winning. <laughs> Just imagine that's the, the case, right? And you're one of those children. You might be the third or the fourth in a large family. And you're getting into your teenage years, maybe 18, 19 at the end of it, and you're starting to think what about why your parents may have had so many children. You, you start wondering, I wonder if they had children, not for the sake of having children, but for the money. Does that make sense? Now, those of us that have children, we know it's not an economic decision. It's not a psychological decision. <laughs> uh, in fact, it largely makes no sense at all uh, on lots of metrics. 
But once you have children, you realise, well, we all know why. The goal of having children is to have children. It's to enter into those relationships, to see them flourish, to see them grow, to see them become their own person. It's to be families, societies, cultures of love. The, the, the reason we have children is the point. Under this other scenario, the reason you might have children is to get something else. When Paul continually, when Jesus continually says, you should work for the kingdom because you'll be rewarded, if those rewards are something disconnected from the work we're doing, then it's a works-based righteousness for something else. It's heretical. More than that, it's rather pathetic. I'm only being nice to you so that I can get something else. I'm using you as a means to an end, not as an end in itself. God doesn't treat us that way, and he says we shouldn't treat others that way. So I think the nature of these rewards is that in heaven, we're going to be given all sorts of tasks to do. I mean, what else will we be doing? God's gifted you. God's put passions within you. God's created you with certain skills and, and a creativity set, and he wants to see that flourish. And in the, the resurrection, he wants you to use that all for his glory, and he gives you rewards. He gives you further opportunity for service. So if you don't like working for Christ now, you're not going to like the afterlife. If you don't like sacrificing for God now, you're not going to like eternity. If you don't like spending your life, whatever that means for each of you, for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, orienting yourself towards Him and putting Him above you, then you're in for a long, long, boring eternity. Whereas, again, if you ask all Christians, mature Christians, for the last 2,000 years and longer, why are you living this Christian life? Why aren't you giving in to instant gratification? Why are you sacrificing stuff now? Why do you put Christ first? Why are you in a dark church on a beautiful Sunday morning when it's sunny outside? Because God wants us to, and doing what God wants me to do, I come alive. I feel I have purpose. I feel I'm doing what he's created me to do, and in eternity, without any obstacles, I'm going to be doing that on steroids. So I wonder what our accountants might be doing when they get to heaven. Well, if you're an accountant and you are doing that job because you love it, I assume that you'll still be accounting for things in eternity. What will lawyers be doing? They won't be litigating because there's no conflict for them to litigate between. But at, the, at this essence, what is law? It's bringing order out of chaos. Isn't that the essence of law? And that's what God does. And so what would it mean for each of you when you tap into your passions, when you tap into your creativity, when you, you tap into your giftings from God? I wonder what work he's got in store for you that you're only beginning to do now. And we should talk a lot about that. And then the last thing I want to mention is that we'll be cultivating culture. I don't know any other way to say that. We're told repeatedly in Scripture that every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language will be represented in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Christians. If that means white Western middle class people, which of course Christian doesn't. Heaven is for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and seek to live for Him, full of the Holy Spirit, working for the love and because of the love of the Father. 
and there will be black people and there will be brown people and there will be white people and there will be every language and tribe and nation, we're told. This great diversity. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says God and his peoples, plural, will be there. And that surprised me when I read it. I thought it would say God and his people, singular. And it says peoples. And it's, it's a commentary on Isaiah where Isaiah has this vision that at the end of all time, God will gather the entire creation together, people from every corner of the earth. And then in Revelation, it goes further, and it says the kings, the rulers, the magistrates of these nations will bring the splendors of their cultures into the kingdom. What do you reckon that is? What are the splendors of our culture? I don't think it's too hard to work out if you know people from other cultures. You know that they're different from us, and we're different from them, and they're different from them, and you're different from them. And you know that we each have gifts that God has given us, which we contribute. And that's why church is a wonderful idea. It's diverse. We're a diversity within this Christian unity, and heaven will be no different. In a theological context, we often get asked, I get asked this question a lot, can I be Samoan and Christian? Like you would have to give up your Samoan identity to be a Christian. Can I be Maori and Christian? Can I be X, Y, and Z? Can I have an ethnicity? Can I still maintain my culture and be a Christian? How did we get to the point where that's even a question? Because God creates the diversity. He lavishes it upon creation. Whether it's culture and ethnicity, or whether it's color or sight or sound or taste, it, it's all this abundance. It's ridiculous. It's not utilitarian. We don't need all these tastes. We don't need all these colors. We don't need all that diversity. But God just throws it in there because we're enriched by it, and heaven extends that. Now, we could talk more about heaven. We could talk about what it means that it's unending. We could talk more about, about who's there and who's not there. We could talk more about our constitution, how we are physical beings in, in the resurrection. We could talk a lot more about what God is doing, but we don't have time. But I hope those few images sort of set an orientation. And, and Christians in every generation, when we, are, when we are persecuted, when pressure comes on us, What's the one doctrine we go to immediately? It's things to come. It's new heavens, new earth. It's having a hope for the future, which doesn't make us passive in the present, but actually makes us more activist, more faithful, more engaged. And that's partly what I love about this topic. That this is not some great rescue plan or plan B. This is not some giving up on the world by God. This has been God's plan all along. In Genesis 1, he creates man, Adam, in his image, male and female, he creates them. And he says, after day one of creating, it's good, and fills it. Day two, good. Day three, good. Day four, good. Day five, good. He creates Adam, man and woman, in his image and likeness. And he says, it is very good. And I think we're supposed to say, each time we read that, very good for what? And the rest of Scripture fills it out. We were created very good, fit for purpose, to be conformed to the image of the incarnate Son, to be full of the Holy Spirit, to live in a renewed heavens and earth. 
serving the Lord forever, a place in which we are full and flourishing. I want to finish with two stories, if I can, and then hopefully you've got lots of questions that we might um, address after and elsewhere. Two stories to illustrate as I finish. A popular rock group a few years ago released a half-hour video um, with the song attached, August 7, 4.15. They, they enlisted A-list actors uh, to do this video, high production value um, on MTV, when there was MTV here. August 7, 4.15. It's about the, the hidden run and the eventual death of a daughter of one of their roadies. August 7, 4.15. God closed his eyes and the world got mean. I know tonight there's an angel up on heaven's highest hill and no one there can hurt you, no one ever will. Somewhere someone's conscience is like a burning bed. The flames are all around you, how are you going to sleep again? Tell me it was just a dream, August 7, 4.15. God closed his eyes and the world got mean, August 7, 4.15. God closed his eyes. Does God turn his back on his creation? Does God not care? This non-Christian group, they don't know where to turn for answers. They're not opening scripture to see what God says about stuff. They're not going to pastors to to talk about stuff. They don't have Christian friends. And and this torturous half-hour music video, this couple who have lost their child are in absolute grief, of course, but they don't know how to work through that grief. And so eventually they turn on themselves. She's got a notebook. He picks it up in the video, and it's just scribbled through. Why, why, why? He's utterly hopeless. He's helpless. He can't do anything for her. Every time he approaches her, how can I help? What can I do? Eventually she snaps. You should have been there. You should have saved her. It's your fault she's dead. Who else can she blame? And it finishes. It comes to a conclusion. It, it, it just stops, a bit like that Netflix movie. There's no sense. There's no point. There's no resolution. There's no faith or hope or love. I want to contrast that with a true story, a Christian couple. Marshall and Shelley. A Christian couple asked God, why would God allow their little child to live for two minutes before dying? Their child died of a chromosome abnormality. How could a living God do that? Where could they turn for sense in such a tragedy? As far as I was concerned, this was a design flaw, said Marshall, the dad. The designer was directly responsible. The doctor advised them to abort the baby when the problem was initially diagnosed, and in an amazing testimony of faith, Susan, the wife, responded. She said, we believe God is the giver and taker of life. If the only opportunity I have to know this child is in my womb, I don't want to cut that time short. If, if the only world he is to know is the womb, I want that world to be as safe as possible. They left the medical center stunned. Susan said to her husband, pregnancy is hard enough when you know you're going to leave the hospital with a baby. I don't know how I can go through the pain of childbirth knowing I won't have a child to hold. The parents had prayed to God that if it was at all possible, if he wasn't going to heal their child, would he do the next best thing? Would he allow them to see their child have the breath of life? 
And that prayer was answered. The baby was born. They saw its chest rise and fall, the breath of life, before he turned blue and passed away. Do you have a name for the baby? Asked the nurse. Toby, Susan replied. It's a biblical name, short for Tobiah. God is faithful. (sighs) Three months later, their elder daughter also died of a chromosome abnormality. In desperation, in agony, and in utter helplessness, Marshall and Susan turned to Scripture, to God's Word for guidance, because where else could you turn? And their attention was drawn to heaven. They saw that heaven is a place of intense activity, of work and of worship. They, they saw that heaven is our home, that Jesus is preparing for those who love him. Marshall wrote, what is clear is that heaven will be a place of active duty. Even after the ultimate spiritual battle is over, our responsibilities continue. He said, I can't be specific about how we will assist in reigning with Christ, but those tasks sound like they have more significance than most careers we pursue in our lifetimes on earth. Could it be that when I finally start the most significant service of my life, I will find that this is that for which I was truly created for. I may find I was created not for what I would accomplish on this earth, but for the role I will fulfill in the new earth, in the new heaven. Why did God create a child to last two minutes? He didn't. He created Toby for eternity. He creates each of us for eternity. Every man, woman, and child in his image for eternity. And we know that. We have this open secret, and we need to share it. God created Toby for a life in eternity. He created each of us for eternity, where we may be surprised, says Marshall, to find our true calling, which always seemed just out of reach here on earth. I think he's right. I'm going to conclude if the group wants to come up. I'm reminded of Paul in Philippians 1, where he says, Philippians 1, 23, 24. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both sides, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I hope that could be my prayer. And just prior to that, verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. But to die is gain. He understood what was in store for us. The great American pastor and spiritual director, Eugene Peterson, commented once that amen is the last word in worship. It is, he said, the worshiping affirmation to the God who affirms us. It's appropriate then, I think, that on a sermon on heaven, the ultimate place of worship, where God is most fully God and we are most fully ourselves. That the final word in a sermon on heaven is also, Amen.